Welcome to Sparks and Honey's Daily Culture Briefing. My name is Hannah Hickman, and today we are closing out our week-long series of briefings based on our new report, Gen Z Complexities, You've Only Heard Half the Story. In our report and during these briefings, we are challenging assumptions about Gen Z, we're examining their nuances and contradictions, and we're unpacking the changes that they're poised to make. To introduce the cast, I'm going to hand things off to my co-briefer, Ben Grinspan. Uh, thank you very much, Hannah. Um, yeah, welcome to the final day of our Gen Z uh, report coverage. Today we're going to be talking a little bit of politics, and we've assembled a great crew, I think, to do that. We'll start uh, in the room, uh, Anna Martin, Christian Cannoli, thanks for, for joining us. Joining us remotely, we have obviously Hannah Hickman, who has been our, our fearless leader, I think, in this report. And then also somewhere online over there is, is Davion Harris, who is uh, our chief client officer, uh, and we're thrilled to have her join uh, today. So as you know, on, on, on Tuesday, we talked about Gen Z as homemaker as they establish their, uh, their preferred domestic trends. Yesterday, we talked about moods and vibes, because if you're not talking vibes, are you really talking Gen Z? And today, we're going to go into one more very heavily Gen Z topic and think about activism, social politics, identity politics, and really the way in which Gen Z's belief systems uh, inform their behaviors, what they value. And, and that's really our big, our big question today, I think. This um, uh, asking yourselves, you know, uh, what, uh, what, in what ways is Gen Z's, uh, uh, the way that they, their perspectives changing how they interact with institutions, with brands, with each other, with platforms? How is that perspective being shaped by these politics, whether they're social or electoral? Um, so why don't we dive in here uh, really quickly to our elements of culture. One element of culture you're going to see here that's unsurprising uh, pops right up to the top is polarization, right? Uh, look, it's America in 2022. We're going to see a lot of polarization pop up in almost anything we search. I don't think it's surprising that we're seeing that uh, within this search. Um, but Anna, I might ask you to weigh in here. Um, you can see the, the map behind <laughs> you. What elements of culture here do you, would you say um, not only jumps your, uh, not only uh, uh, you know catch your eye, but also are maybe a little bit surprising or a little bit revealing? Uh, I think when it comes to Gen Z, something that's revealing is uh, our our EOC of radical transparency. It's something that they would expect when it comes to uh, any institution, brand, or po politician that they interact with. They want to know the full story and the truth behind everything before they engage. Yeah, and I'll, I'll point out one more here, distributed trust, which I was just doing some work on. That's our element of culture about the idea that when you don't trust institutions, you need to trust in many ways in the crowd. I'm really not surprised to see that pop up for, for Gen Z as we have this conversation. But it is worth thinking about what it means when uh, you have to trust those around you rather than those uh, above you, if, if, if we're getting mm -hmm. uh, to that. So um, I'm going to pass things off to Hannah to take us through our first signal here to talk about how the turmoil of the world is impacting Gen Z's perspectives. Yeah, this is a really great interview um, with uh, John Delavolpe, who's the director of polling at the Harvard Kennedy School's Institute of Politics. He's a former advisor to the Biden campaign, and he's exploring the evolution of Gen Z's political values in his book, which was released earlier this year, Fight, How Gen Z is Channeling Their Fear and Passion to Save America. So in this interview with, with Volt and activist David Hogg, who wrote the foreword to the book, they touch on what is driving Gen Z to participate in politics and what is pushing them away from that participation. So Volt notes that across his research, he's seen the biggest predictor of whether or not a young person participates in politics or votes is whether they can see a tangible difference in their vote. And Haig is also noting that our generation is not going to wait for progress. We have to vote, but we also have to remember that change 
has to be created inside and outside of politics. So this interview just brings up a lot of the really interesting cultural and political context that Gen Z have come of age in. Many of them were, were born after 9-11. It was sort of the specter hanging over their childhood. They came of political and voting age during the Trump presidency, which was very divisive. I'm really interested to know from our panel, what are the biggest factors that we think are going to drive Gen Z to either participate in or sit out when it comes to politics and when it comes to voting? Yeah, I think when it comes to uh, voting and politics, one thing we saw in our research on the report was that almost half of Gen Zers don't see themselves in uh, the current political system. Hmm. They, they may have liberal views. They may be passionate about certain values. Uh, you know, they have their activist-leaning things that may be under the liberal umbrella, but they don't necessarily support the status quo the way it is, either on the Republican or Democratic side. Yeah. So they're seeing a lot of influence from abroad with socialism and, uh, you know, things that they're passionate about, like saving the climate or the planet. Um, and they want to see their values really reflected in their politics, too, before they yeah. cast a vote. Yeah, it's an interesting cultural divorce in some ways between politics and policy. We've seen a lot of that. I mean, if you watched, that's not even just a U.S. trend. If you watched the, the, the debate last night between um, uh, Emmanuel Macron and, uh, and, uh, and Jean-Marie Le Pen, you would see that, like, a lot of the Western world is seeing this split between what is political and what is policy. And I think we can see that Gen Z has a lot of policy aims, a lot of policy goals. They find real value in having those conversations. But it's the politics of that, that the institutional side of things that they uh, have separated themselves from a little bit. And maybe that's a natural thing. I mean, I don't know how many 22-year-olds used to, or 20-year-olds used to love the Democratic Party 30 years ago or whatever, but it does feel particularly pronounced uh, for, for this group. Mm -hmm. I think it's also interesting when you think about it through the lens of identity and when we talk about politics and to the points that Hannah and Anna just made, it's not, uh, you know, even if you identify with liberal or conservative values, that doesn't define who you are. It's, you know, the whole idea of being a conservative, a Republican or a Democrat, you know, it is a turnoff uh, to, to Gen Z's who, you know, were really wanting to be defined by what they believe and then what those parties and policies are doing to drive action as opposed to it really being about defining who they are and how they you know identify themselves so i think that's also the distinction we're making with other generations it's very much about who you belong to and which side you're on yeah i think that's really critical especially when we think about gen z and how they tear down identity to so many different components. Sure. Like, they get to such mm -hmm. granular levels, whereas, you know, if Black Gen Z looks at Black politicians, they're not going to immediately identify with them. They're literally looking at, okay, well, what is their class distinction? What is their gender? What is their sexuality? And how can I interrogate that further? Whereas, like, instead, maybe, like, a previous generation may have been like, oh, they're looking out for me. But I feel like Gen Z is a little bit more of, like, a, a cautious, even more anxious, uh, maybe skinfolk isn't always kinfolk-type generation. Sure. Um, which is, uh, I think, really interesting when we think about it through the lens of politics. Well, it's like, I, 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 I look, I don't begrudge black Gen Zers looking at Jim Clyburn or whatever and being like, I don't see myself represented in that guy's, uh, views as as policy and progressive as, as he may be. Okay, so that's like normal politics. I don't think we can have a conversation about normal electoral politics without talking about alt politics. So, um, Hannah, tell us about this signal from the UK uh, about Gen Z boys uh, who are uh, anti-feminist. 
Yeah, and I, I love, Ben, your point, all politics might even be more influential for Gen Z. So this is a, a study published in July 2020 by the anti-extremism charity Hope Not Hate. They found that half of young men in the UK believe feminism has gone too far and it makes it harder for men to succeed. So there's two really interesting threads in this article. One is around how this type of ideology is spread to Gen Z. So derogatory, violent language and memes, it's intrinsic to certain parts of the internet on 4chan, YouTube, Reddit, gaming platforms. What's troubling for experts right now is that how incel and men's rights groups are targeting younger and younger members of Gen Z. So mm. really trying to get at the youngest cohort of Gen Z and radicalizing them using subtle misogyny that becomes more and more extreme. The other thread that this article explores is around why is this type of ideology appealing for Gen Z men? Mm. So Gen Z came of age during a time when women were getting more, still not equal, but more economic and social power. They're using movements like Time's Up to try and hold men accountable for their actions. And what this study explores is that this has left many Gen Z men feeling that feminism is about reductionalism of men. As one Gen Z man put it, who, who's active on men's rights forums on Reddit, when you get put in the same bracket with men are trash, you start to think, what's the point? So Rosie Carter, who is Hope's senior policy officer, is also worried about the context of the early 2020s for Gen Z men, saying isolation, feeling hopeless, feeling out of control, and that things aren't right. This is when we see an increase in people looking to the far right. So my question for the panel is, we talk a lot about things like new masculinity or about Gen Z's progressive politics, about Gen Z men having more freedom in their gender expression. Clearly, though, that is not the whole picture. And we also need to be paying attention to the rise of extremism, to anti-feminist ideology among Gen Z men. I'm curious, what do we think that public leaders or institutions and brands need to understand about extremism and Gen Z men, either how it's spreading or why it's so appealing to them right now? Uh, Kristen, I would love to get your, your POV on this to kick it off. Honestly, it's it's interesting because we are facing so much of like the realities of extremism, right? Like we're seeing a lot of people from incel forums, whether it's on Reddit or 4chan, go on and literally start to act these things out. Like we've had several like fatal uh, shootings because of this. An insurrection. An insurrection, absolutely. And I think, yeah, lest we forget. Um, I think that when we think about how this is impacting younger and younger generations, we also have to understand like how it how innately baked misogyny is into our culture already and how we have to kind of break down those things to their most essential forms, which is like, what does misogyny mean? What does it actually mean? Like, as far as how these people are interacting with women, how they're interacting with other men, is their interactions with other men based through misogyny? Like, is that how, and yeah. like, and that's something that's like, generationally traceable almost like that's something that you can see back from like the like the kids now to even like you know the the older men that um you know have like you know those little boys clubs where they might dog on women and i think this is just almost like a reality of something that's been baked into our society for so long so unearthing this and discussing extremism we have to address the larger yeah. the larger inequalities and the larger systemic pressures against women anna can i ask you a question um yeah. and first of all anybody in the audience or online who'd love to weigh and you are more than welcome to as well. But Anna, I mean, one thing that the report shows us is that uh, while, while these men may be turning against feminism, we've seen a lot of evidence to suggest that Gen Z women are themselves pretty ardent feminists. How do we, how do we square that tension? Yeah, I mean, it's, the whole report is about tension, so thanks for highlighting that. And it, it's interesting, too, when we think of 
the expression that Gen Z have. They're, they're very, to their core, they want to be authentic in whatever it is they do. So yeah. we're also seeing movements that could be deemed on the right or conservative side with Gen Z women, like the trad wife movement, where you know, they're showcasing real traditional values, right. wanting to you know, play up the ideal of being a housewife before they're a housewife and doing everything in an apron and sharing it online. Um, and then also leaning conservative in their, their perspectives. And then at the other side, you have uh, very um, you know, quality-based um, you know, feminists that we would think uh, are appropriate to this age group or that we hear a lot more from. Yeah. But I think what's interesting, too, when we think of our element of culture, um, of micro-tribes or micro-cultures, micro-communities, yeah. micro um, and when we think of institutions and what people need to understand about these groups, it's often too late. Like, they've already been deep in their hole for a long time before, you know, someone um, writes an article about something that's happening. So right. it's, it's on everyone to kind group, of pay yeah. attention to all these different, the bubbling up of all these different communities. And to me, maybe just before we move on, the thread to me seems to be that, look, the trad wives and the incels are a very small group. And we, we, should, we should acknowledge that this is a small extreme group in the way that there are small extreme groups on the other side of, 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 the, of the dial. But yeah. what it does suggest is that Gen Z lets their political and social values manifest themselves in their lifestyles mm -hmm. in a way that we don't, we didn't necessarily see other people do at that same age. 20 should be an age where you're experiment, where you're dabbling with stuff, but it's very, it's very, I think it's rare in previous generations for those to really show up in your consumer habits. Especially, I think, when we think about, like, algorithms and the ways that people are, like, even siloing themselves within these communities. Like, when you're thinking about, like, how people are experimenting with values and ideas, like, it's hard to share that when, you know, you're, like, in the midst of a pandemic and you're in your little TikTok or Reddit hole. Yeah. And, like, you're just stuck in there for two years. Like, you're obviously going to come out more polar than we ever have, obviously, with polarization trending to the top of our zeitgeist map, like... It's just really interesting to think about how when you would put yourself into a vacuum politically, ideolo ideologically, yeah. like how, like what are the, uh, what are going to be the implications of that going mm -hmm. forward? Well, let's talk quickly. As I said yesterday, we talked about mood and vibes. So let's quickly talk about um, the ultimate mood, religion. Um, teen years uh, are actually very common age for people to lose their sense of faith. Uh, and many who drop out of religion uh, don't come back. So it's not that surprising that the American Survey Center says, quote, disaffiliated Americans express significant skepticism about the societal benefits of religion and that Gen Z over-indexes on being those uh, disaffected Americans. Um, Gen Z is the most likely generation to say they are not affiliated with the faith. 34% identify as full atheists compared to, say, 18% of their boomer grandparents. Um, and honestly, both are uh, pretty low. Uh, those, are, those are lower than you'd expect to see, I think, several decades ago. There are, there are a couple notable things here. Um, one thing that I thought was super interesting, while Gen Z is like 50% less likely to say they attend services, they are as likely to say that they read scripture every day as boomers and silent generation, which means that they're less likely to be religious. But if they are religious, they're still engaging in many of those same behaviors in the same way that uh, people, you know, their grandparents are. So, um, you know, it is not surprising, I think, to see that we're seeing some level of faith fall off. But some of that question might be not, does faith disappear, but where does it transfer out to? So question for the panel. We obviously talk a lot about Gen Z uh, and faith in institutions. Where does that lack of faith in institutions maybe come when you're thinking about faith in God or the gods or, or Mother Gaia? And Davian, I might pick on you to start with, uh, us off with this. What are, what are your thoughts about that connection between uh, faith in, in the government and perhaps faith in, in the church? 
Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think there's a lot of parallels between religion and what we were talking about with politics and, you know, whether it's identity or thinking about the formalities around it. And so where we might see uh, Gen Z's being religious uh, mm -hmm. or believing, having certain beliefs, it manifests maybe differently than their parents or their grandparents. Um, and even thinking about millennials who kind of created or moved into the sort of spiritual versus religious um, sort of uh, category, if you will. Now, I feel like we're seeing this resurgence of religion, but being defined sort of on their own terms. So it doesn't necessarily mean, you know, going to a church or another structure or worshiping in the same types of ways. But again, it's, it's extracting the sort of values yeah. and the rituals um, that are meaningful to them and kind of crafting their own sense uh, of, you know, values around that and yeah. a similar way that we're seeing that kind of manifest again in politics, where it's not about being put in a sort of box or defining yourself by one thing or another, but taking what works and bringing that forward in terms of how you, you live your life and what you believe. Yeah, we have a, we have a guest comment. Would you like, yeah, yeah. Um, just going on, on politics and faith, kind of hard to not talk about Kanye West. Um, and it's just <laughs> thinking about that, you know, youth who might have really gone, been dragged kicking and screaming to Sunday school mm -hmm. are now like kicking and screaming at Ticketmaster or whoever about like their access to Sunday service. Right. right? So, and the fact that the person orchestrating this Sunday service is not a minister, he's a musician, right, who has ambitions to be a politician. So right. just looking at, you know, looking at that from the other side of like Kanye's influence, how me as a, someone who grew up on him younger might yeah. see it now. I'm curious about the thinking of someone growing up younger looking at him. And they have the benefit of Jesus, you know, genius canonizing his like life and his role. Mm -hmm. in, Jesus walks up yes. to running for president, right? But we didn't have that benefit. So our take, our capacity to take that lens on politics and faith seriously is very different from a younger generation who also spent two years bunkered, uh, as you mentioned, you know, on TikTok, on social. Right. Kind of dis distilling and alchemizing, like, what's their take on faith? It's very different from ours. Well, first of all, I'm stealing using alchemizing as a verb. That's incredible. <laughs> and I do want to tie something that Damian said very quickly here. I, I love what you said about rituals, because in many ways, that's what this is, right? Religion is all about, it is, religion is the, is the ritualization of spirituality. It's not always the spirituality itself. And, I do wonder how many of those people who might find the ritual of going to church or whatever 30, 40 years ago is valuable to them aren't finding those rituals the same as joining a group. I mean, the, the, the Sunday service is an example of a ritual. I don't know how religious it actually is, but you may find that ritual in like, um, you know, your online trivia group or in your or literally in your morning beauty ritual. There is a there is a human need to ritualize. And while I, I, I go back to what I said earlier, I think while faith may not and, and ritual may not take place within the confines of a church, it doesn't mean that it can't be activated for uh, for Gen Zers who may really have a lot of faith in hyaluronic acid. Um, yeah, we're, we're also seeing uh, Gen Zers kind of transfer the idea of faith also to the wellness community, yeah. which really emphasizes mm -hmm. holistic health and wellness from a spiritual, yeah. emotional, physical level. And there's a lot of ritual involved in that too, whether it's, you know, you know, lighting your incense or having your daily affirmations, whatever it is. 
uh, and being able to express themselves through that avenue as well. Gen Z faith healing tents are the next uh, the next <laughs> big thing, re-resurrecting re the 1930s. Um, okay, I did want to talk here about this next article. Um, just very quickly, this was actually just a really nice article written by a 14-year-old um, about how when they were a seventh grader, they got uh, the dress code at their school changed. Um, so Kristen Wong is, uh, went to Lincoln Middle School in Alameda, California, um, and uh, got a verbal warning about the outfit she was wearing. It didn't meet the, the student uh, dress codes. And, uh, you know, I won't go into the full detail here, but essentially she and a group of friends came together to push back against that dress code, which, like all dress codes in, in, in most schools, fell disproportionately on uh, female students and female identifying students uh, rather than the male students. So, you know, they did this incredible digital activism. Uh, they, they pushed past just their own president to go talk to, uh, principal, excuse me, um, to go talk to the school board itself. And there was a lot of really impressive activism that went on in here, led by 13-year-olds to ask, uh, you know, they were doing digital research. They were clearly doing some, uh, some, some really solid cultural strategy. You know, maybe we need to bring in uh, Kristen Wong as like a summer intern or something. But where it lands is that what FASCO says here is that Wong's successful campaign is a prime example of Gen Z engaging in activism. It doesn't have to be trying to stop climate change. It can be something as small and relevant as saying, look, these dress codes are, are outdated. So I guess my big question for everyone here is, is knowing a little bit about this signal, what Gen Z trends do you see manifesting in, in here? Is this about that polarization? Or is it other questions about how Gen Z sees you know, the internet or, or a little bit of that distributed trust that I was talking about earlier? I really like the idea of, of distributed trust yeah. in this then. And mm -hmm. it's about who do you trust to enact change? And I think we've been talking about this in the, the religion signal and the signal about, you know, who, their, their relationship to politics and that first signal about seeing, needing to see the impact of their vote. There's something really interesting here about Gen Z saying, I don't necessarily trust you know, the president of my country, because that has no relationship to me, or I don't necessarily trust the leader of my church, but I trust in myself. I trust in myself to make change at a smaller scale. Mm. And I love this idea that the Gen Z activism, so often we focus on climate change, and that's an existential threat that Gen Z have coming of age in. But they're also finding smaller ways within their homes, within their communities to think about what is the change that I want to see on this stage? And how can I trust in myself and empower myself to create that change. I think this is a great example of that. Yeah, I think overall, like just even to what Hannah was saying, like overall, we're seeing Gen Z take an actual tangible approach to changing the things that they want to see change. Yeah. And I think it's very different, whereas maybe like a few years ago, like people were more uh, likely to maybe focus more on the optics. They wanted to make sure that like the things that they were saying, the things that they believed in were like, you know, in tune with the with the social, the status quo. Whereas I feel like, you know, if there's a couple of students at a school that are like, damn, you know, our, our dress code is really sexist. Let's go ahead and, like, change that. They're not going to talk to the principal. They're not going to talk to the teachers. They're going to find a way to do it themselves. Yeah. And I think that's the thing that's really interesting, especially as you see them grow up. We're seeing them take a very definitive approach to their own activism in a way that isn't necessarily focused on on optics or on, like, big, grandiose, uh, I guess, moments of, of, of maybe, like, some type of communal, you know, like protests or something like right. that. They're they're forming groups. They're forming uh, they're forming forums. They're having ways to do it that um, are are directly going to to promote that change. Um, if we weren't under a slight time constraint, my big question would be: 
why didn't we see millennials do this? But we might literally need another briefing for that. Yeah, I did want to tie to. this. <laughs> yeah, I literally I want to tie this to another signal here just while we're uh, talking about high school politics. We can talk about midterm politics too. CNN recently reported on our uh, uh, that uh, on well, I guess it's on their conversation about youth activism and politics, saying that while activism um, uh, is, is both uh, in the streets and online, gives the impression that Gen Z is exceptionally liberal. Uh, young Americans ages 18 to 29, while they do lean left, um, and only 36% of them voted for Trump in, in uh, 2020, um, there are legitimate members of them who believe in limited government and fiscal conservatism and those who even identify with the Republican Party. It is not the niche group that I think it's uh, portrayed. If you have 36% of people voting for Donald Trump, that's a pretty sizable chunk of people. Um, and so the big question is, what does this mean in a midterm year? So, um, you know, uh, the RNC is really bullish about this. Uh, I will say that one thing that I see in the language here is that it doesn't feel like it's language that's... It feels like it's language meant at people who watch Fox News, who skew a lot older. It does not necessarily feel like they are speaking directly to, to Gen Z or using any of their uh, terminology. But the, there are a lot of important recurring themes here, things like the cost of living, um, you know, the, the sense of lack of, of leadership or lack of faith in, in institutions are important. Um, and, and one thing that's, that's interesting here, this article points out, is that Gen Z Republicans, because they are Gen Z, while they are overwhelmingly white, they do look a lot more diverse than the generations that came before them. And, and one thing that these Gen Z Republicans often lack is kind of some leadership figures. They, you know, if you are, if, if you are an 18-year-old black Republican woman, there is almost no one for you to look up to, right? And so some of them are taking this into their own hands to say, like, look, Candace Owens is no one I want to be, but I still have some of these more conservative values. Like, I have to be my own thought leader here. I don't know how many people are out there like that, but the article suggests there are some, and I think it's valuable to think about how they see the world, because then we can get that, that other perspective. We can't just skip over that. Um, so question for the panel. I mean, I guess, I guess my question is, what should brands do with this sense that there really are conservative Gen Zers, right? We think about reaching out to Gen Z and brand activism. It skews heavily socially progressive, heavily liberal, because that is what the majority want. But what does that mean for the, for the third of Gen Zers who really don't see themselves represented in brands? Is, um, is, is this the kind of thing that brands should be chasing? Are there different language, different strategies to make them feel more included? I mean, one thing to think about is, is um, uh, looking at this from the perspective of speaking to Gen Zers, regardless of how they might identify under Republican or Democrat, but to their very specific interests. So if you're a young uh, black uh, Gen Zer who is fiscally conservative, you know, look, look at that kind of microcosm of what that means to that person. Yeah. And it would have to mean really like, slicing and dicing a lot of challenge perspectives totally. of what, what they think of uh, youth voters or, um, you know, where they might end up skewing because you have to speak to them in, in the language that they understand and will draw them yeah. in with an interest or specificity that they identify with. Yeah. Davion, did you want to add something? Yeah, no, I 100% agree. I mean, I think so much of the challenge is, you know, and goes back to what we were talking about with, with politics and even religion and some of these other areas around the definitions and being uh, so prescriptive in terms of uh, titles and labels and making, you know, assumptions about, I mean, you, you brought up an 18-year-old Black woman Republican, right? And people can't see that. They see the sort of extremist yeah. version of, you know, the, the person who's out there posting these egregious things about 
anti-feminism when there's a lot of people in between that did vote for Trump or do have sort of, you know, conservative values and aren't being reflected. And, you know, they are looking for that type of action as opposed to, you know, talking about politics and platitudes around action that brands may or may not, you know, be taking. So I think, you know, for brands, it's about being open, right, mm-hmm. and not talking in those sort of extremist um framing as they think about labels and about, you know, even climate action and things uh, like that, where, you know, you get the eye roll because so many brands and people are talking about these issues, but not actually taking the action. So how are you moving the agenda forward without getting caught up into the political language and things where people are are sort of tired of it and want to see that the type of action that they haven't previously. Davion, it's so funny that you bring up climate because this art, this previous article uh, does speak to a young female Republican climate change activist. And a lot of people are like, how does that work? But clearly for her and maybe for some others, it, it does. Let's, um, let's open up our perspective a little bit. We've talked a lot about the U.S. Um, how to, tell us about um, censorship uh, in, in China and how it's impacting young Chinese people. Yeah, this is an incredible article. Highly recommend checking it out. It's by an investigative reporter, Tracy Wenlu, who's discussing the difference between Chinese millennial and Gen Z when it comes to issues like censorship. And she also notes that the the generational terms don't always match up across countries. So it's something that we need to be cognizant of when we're trying to understand Gen Z in different contexts. So Lu notes that one of the key differences between my generation, and she's a Chinese millennial, and Chinese Gen Z is that the latter grew up relatively rich. Mm-hmm. Average incomes in China have soared from about $317 in 1990 to $10,434. in 2020. Perhaps as a result, China's Gen Z are dramatically more comfortable in their current environment than my generation was. So Lou's describing how Gen Z in China seem more tolerant of things like digital snitching or a crackdown on what's discussed in college campuses. She attributes these attitudes to both the greater prosperity and security that Gen Z grew up with, as well as the fact that they didn't experience access to a free web like millennials in China who were able to use Google and YouTube pretty much unfettered before the strengthening of Gen Z's or of China's great firewall. So Obviously, when we talk about Gen Z, there's a lot of emphasis on flattening, on globalization of culture. But this article illustrates that we really need to interrogate the differences in global context influencing Gen Z beliefs and behaviors, and even the differences in in how millennial and Gen Zers across the globe might have experienced things like access to information. My question for the the panel is, um, for brands looking to tap into Gen Z in different markets, what do they need to be paying attention to? How can they better tune in to different global Gen Z perspectives rather than just kind of exporting the the Gen Z perspective in the US or in uh, Western markets? Ben, I would love to toss this to you to to start us off. Yeah, uh, Hannah knows that I've been spending a lot of time thinking about some some global markets recently. And, and honestly, what's interesting here is, uh, look, the, the, the article itself is fabulous, but the, the question to me sitting here as a, as a cultural strategist is, is a question of methodology, right? How do you speak to global values, global cultural developments, but in a unique national context? And I think that's what's really important to recognize about Gen Z is that whether you live in Lagos or in Los Angeles, you're still engaging with much of the same culture. Culture is flattened to the point where everybody can be a fan of, of BTS, regardless of, of where you are, right? And um, that needs to be viewed in, in, in the, the, the goal of, of, of 
brands is less to worry about the global culture there and more understand some of the national filters that, that come through there. So I was just doing some work for a client thinking uh, about a major Latin American country where, that has also gotten really, where the, the young people there have really gotten into vintage as well. But instead of exploring, you know, the, they get a lot of vintage clothing from the U.S., but instead of sort of exploring like older styles and having this sort of question about, um, you know, did this literally come from somebody I know, it is a little bit of U.S. cosplay there, right? And so it's understanding that they're both on Depop, they may be selling themselves the same Western wear, but that, that comes with a slightly different context. And you need to understand kind of where that comes in. So this is a really important article in saying that, like, look, Gen Z in China looks different than millennials in China. And you also have to recognize that Gen Z in India is going to be experiencing slightly different, you know, the slightly different manifestations of this. Same with ones in South Africa, same with ones in, in Europe. So the methodology is really important to make sure that it's layered, you know, to make sure that we're not just speaking about Gen Z as Gen Z loves BTS. It's like, no, Gen Z likes BTS. A lot of them do anyway. But it's, they're going to understand it in a different context. And the key is figuring out how those contexts filter down into their own um, proper uh, you know, national uh, perspectives. Mm -hmm. So that's me a little bit on a soapbox. Yeah, right wow. Any thoughts? There you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, I don't know if I can follow that up. But um, I do just think that it also speaks to that granularity that I think I was getting at earlier about how Gen Z is interrogating identity and perspective yeah. in such a way where they don't even see, they don't see themselves as homogenous. Like, and that's the interesting thing that a lot of brands might look at Gen Z and be like, we need Gen Z because Gen Z is this, Gen Z is that. But Gen Z doesn't look at each other and, and, and immediately feel that uh, immediate sense of connection with everyone. Um, because of largely the economic factors, like a lot of like the different like racial factors, the nationality factors, like they are trying to figure that out within themselves is how they can uh, interrelate with other people that are like them, whether that's online or uh, in person. But I do think overall, like if you're talking about a brand or you're talking about a public figure that yeah. wants to tap into Gen Z, but they want to tap into them globally, you do have to filter down and understand, well, what are those key values? Yeah. Because they're going to look very, very different across all of these global right. markets. Which makes the whole <laughs> thing like again from a methodological perspective like it's expensive it's expensive yes. to what Gen Z wants, right? you need multiple people multiple language skills working on this um okay we've talked global Shahana, should we talk about the, the creeping global menace of socialism Yes, yes. <laughs> I'm, a I'm, very I'm millennial perspective yeah. to, to view socialism as a, a menace. So this is a, a really interesting article. It's based on some research that was done in the UK by the Institute of Economic Affairs. They found that 67% of 16 to 34 year olds would like to live in a socialist economic system. So Laura Cunliffe-Hall, she's the chair of the Young Fabians, it's part of Britain's oldest left-wing think tank, the Fabian Society, says that many Gen Z don't have access to capital. So a system that re distributes wealth more fairly is going to be very attractive to them as part of explaining why socialism is, is rising among Gen Z. So naturally, we see that Gen Z are turning to digital platforms to engage with socialism, to engage with anti-capitalism. There's social accounts like Slutty for Socialism, which yeah. does a, a lot of meme work, Dixieland of the Proletariat, which is creating really interesting uh, content around class consciousness, capitalist exploitation from the perspective of people in the, the Southern United States. TikTokers are adopting a, a communist chic aesthetic thanks to a resurgence of Soviet era art and symbolism. But it, you know, it's not all memes. So the, the article quotes one young woman, Lenny, age 19, who says that knowing what we know about the climate and how industrial farming and mass production is bringing us to the brink of ecological collapse, it's hard to support a system that would allow the status quo to continue. 
So this is a, a really fascinating article, just exploring how Gen Z, who's divorced from a, a Cold War perspective, is having a very different interest in socialism and in you know, anti-capitalist ideologies. For the, the panel, my question is, you know, many people believe that, that regardless of generation, people are going to become more conservative as they age, more fiscally conscious as they have you know, more, uh, more economic power. Do we think that's going to be true for Gen Z or do we think they're going to buck the change or the trend and still be interested in this type of wealth redistribution even as they generate more wealth? Hmm. Uh, Christian, would love to get your perspective on this. Yeah, um, honestly, I'm thinking a little bit about um, something in the report that spoke to uh, those tensions within Gen Z about how they, you know, are favoring so much of uh, climate change activism and things like that, but also how, like, they're proponents to, like, really want to buy fast fashion is, like, still very, right. very strong. And the thing that I ask myself the question is, is, like, you see, like, the, the propagandizing, if you will, or even, like, the commodification, if you will, of, like, socialist. Yeah. Uh, of, of verbiage. We even saw like back a few years ago when a lot of people were getting really interested in like not just critical race theory, but like abolition. And uh, people were like really like reading into like serious theory, people that were like 14, 15, 16 even that were calling themselves abolitionists that were reading, you know, very integral like Bell Hooks work. But um, even then, like I'm thinking like if that is their ideology then, yeah. and those are still their practices, even if like with a touch of hypocrisy or even much more than that, are we gonna see those like only grow larger? Are we gonna see them become even more outspoken, but still somehow, yeah. like even as like a little bit hypocritical in their practice, which is interesting. I don't wanna call out Gen Z for that. I would be calling out myself, but I just genuinely, I have that same question. It's like, do they get older and like silo down a little bit on like their, um, on their outspokenness? But I, I, I don't know. I don't, I, I honestly have no idea. I tag this. It's funny. My I have a I have a sibling who was a communist when he was thirteen. He got really into <laughs> communism. He was part of the Young Communism League. There are like posters all over the house of like his love of Marxism. Uh, he is does not live in Cuba on a collective farm. You know, right. he kind of he kind of outgrew it. And honestly, it was just an amazing way to provoke people in the 1990s. So in a certain way, saying that socialism we're moving it away from meme culture, uh, I think it's impossible to grapple with Gen Z's interest in socialism without talking a little bit about. Uh, meme culture. Um, and, you know, some of this is just the fact that, like, look, there are <laughs> there are several political parties globally, especially here, that keeps banging that socialism drum, saying that it's like a creeping menace, as I was joking earlier. You're going to provoke more people to say they're socialist by saying that. And so, you know, as, a, as sort of that counterbalance. So I'm not saying that the politics, that, that the, the abolitionism or the thing that redistributes wealth, I'm not saying that that policy is going away. But I also think for a generation that hates labeling itself, to be so interested in labeling themselves as socialists might be uh, a bit of trolling on some people's parts. Yeah. And actually, I just want to tag well, this. Well, the really manifestation then, yeah, but... as you said, might it might appear differently as they move forward and age, but those same kind of intrins intrinsic values um, may not change and yeah. how they were shaped. I mean, going through a pandemic of, you know, racial reckoning and all of the other kind of opportunities to see up close the inequities in the world, the challenges to healthcare systems. I mean, war, right? There's so many factors that are shaping yeah. who they are and how they think, right? That are not going to go away. So yeah, no, I think right. that's also important to think about. Can't unlearn, can't unring that bell, basically. 
You can't unring that bell hooks. Oh, my God. We are getting paid by the bun. Okay. Uh, really quick final signal here. Um, and I just thought it was really topical and well worth talking about that Gen Z is driving the unionization effort at Starbucks. So for those of you who haven't heard about this, there are almost two dozen Starbucks in the U.S. that have uh, unionized. Uh, this is a, a non-union-friendly uh, organization. And, um, you know, these are Gen Zers. These are people in their early 20s who lived, who have lived their entire lives in the era after sort of post-union America finding ways to unionize. And I'll just read quickly here from this article from, uh, from Time. Uh, many Starbucks organizers are in their 20s. The average age of a barista is 24. And they are tweeting their calls to unionize, running Zoom onboard meetings uh, for other would-be organizers, and holding uh, organizing get-togethers in living rooms or at local bars, right? They are leveraging the places where Gen Zers are to do this effort. And, um, you know, now that we see young workers, uh, there are reports that younger workers are actually interested in working at Starbucks in a way that they didn't used to be, because the idea is, well, if you're going to work, if you're going to make 17 at Chipotle or 17 an hour at Starbucks, but Starbucks is unionized, I'm going to pick the Starbucks over over the, you know, whatever other place I, I might work. And so I guess my quick question for the panel as we go through this is, look, Starbucks is, a, is, a, is an interesting, cool organization. I get why, the, you know, they have a history of opposing um, uh, unionization, and I don't know if that's a fruitful topic for us to discuss right now. But my question is, is there a value? Is this the kind of thing where they can reposition themselves among Gen Z to say, like, hey, we're the unionized coffee shop, you know? Is that how they beat... Dunkin' Donuts, or is that something that's so far out that we can't even discuss it? <laughs> I mean, I think it's not just Gen Z. It's uh, It would be beneficial for a lot of groups, and it's something that we talked about in our Business Bets report as yeah. a, a rising trend of marginalized voices in the workplace actually, you know, uh, creating change just like yeah. this. My instinct is that it would freak people, just to play devil's advocate for, kid for a second, for every person you'd attract by saying Starbucks is unionized, you'd repel a whole bunch of other people, and mm -hmm. I don't know if I would do it. Hannah, did you want to add really quick? Yeah, I, yeah, I don't know if I, I'd agree with that, Ben. I, I honestly think wealth equity is a huge thing that Gen Z are interested in, as Davion said in the last signal. That might manifest in different ways, but it's not going away. Hmm. And so many brands, as they start to think about Gen Z as not just consumers, but as employees, are going to need to reckon with that. How do you as a brand who is employing a global workforce who is going to be more interested in wealth redistribution, who is thinking about your role as a capital conglomerate in making money off of their labor. Yeah. How do you need to engage in different conversations with them about how you're paying with them, paying them about pay equity, about things like, you know, the, the global uh, minimum wage. I think brands need to be ready to engage in those conversations as Gen Z comes of age as an employee force. Yeah, I, th I think you're very right about this not going away. Aaron, do you want to add one yeah, last thing? There's a fascinating element, too, when we're talking about crypto and we're talking about uh, blockchain. Like, these DAOs are a mm -hmm. huge way to structure organizational access. And Bitcoin is a huge way to talk about how we're changing currency. Right now, it's obviously still in the, you know, uh, rich few. But yeah. these structures that we're talking about, I see a huge intersection here of unions connecting with DAOs. And there are... There are people, you know, I think what we try to do with the report is say, this is new stuff, but here's how we're couching it historically. Yeah. And here's where people can find strength to keep going on these campaigns. And I would be floored if the National Labor Relations Board had had a single conversation about DAOs, these distributed autonomous organizations. I'd be, maybe some people in there, but as an institution, no, they haven't had that. And you're totally right about yeah. it. You're totally right about that. Um, we should move to wrap up. Stavion, uh, as we talk about 
brands. What are the big takeaways here from today for, for brands? What should they, should they be afraid of Gen Z politics or should they, uh, uh, or should they embrace them warmly? Um, I mean, no room for fear. I mean, I think that the biggest takeaway for, for brands is really thinking about, you know, what they say um, and thinking about how they turn that into how they show up, right? Because as we've seen, whether it's DEI, whether it's around politics, climate action, all of these various issues, every brand has something to, to talk about or say or put on their website or social media. But as we're seeing with Gen Z, they're holding them accountable. They want to see the action. They want, whether it's Starbucks and the unions or all the other examples that we've been talking through in terms of taking uh, these sort of uh, implications around what we need to do as yeah. a society in these various fields, taking that into um, action, whether it's for the brands themselves or enabling Gen Zs and others, creating that platform for them to take actions on their own. So, Christian, as we're speaking of socialism, can we talk about the nonprofits here? What do, what would, uh, what do the colleges, the policy organizations, the churches who might come across this briefing today? What might they need to? What would you? What would be your takeaway for them? Uh, for them, it would be you have to understand that they see you as an institution, mm -hmm. and that they see you not completely dissimilar from a complete corporate conglomerate. Yeah. Like they, they, they are, they are uh, addressing you and they are um, investigating you with as much specificity as they would um, like a major, major corporation. So yeah. you have to like be on your stuff and you have to know what it is that you're going to say and like speaking even to that authenticity and that, uh, um, that genuineness that they want to see. Yeah. There's no room for fear, and there's no room to hide behind a 501c3 designation. Absolutely. Um, Anna, will you tell us your thoughts about trends? We talked about a couple different ones today. You know, we, we're wrapping up our series here. If there was a particular growth trend that you thought was really valuable for a brand to explore, what would that be? Uh, well, maybe it's the intersection of a couple trends like crowd economy and, and unapologetic, which really yeah. uh, encompasses a lot of what we talked about today, the power of the collective voice to... Um, force change in the places where they want to see that change and expect yeah. that to only rise when it comes to Gen Z. Love that. And Hannah, let, let's wrap things up. What, um, you know, I, I, I obviously could talk about this for about 15 minutes, but um, how do we connect what we saw today about identity uh, and politics to our conversations earlier about mood and uh, homemaking? Yeah, I think what we've shown in this briefing is that when it comes to understanding Gen Z's political affiliations, their ideologies, their relationships to institutions, to government or religious leaders, there is so much more than meets the eye. And that holds true for all of the topics we've discussed in the briefings and in the report. For brands and for leaders looking to connect with Gen Z, you have to be willing to question your assumptions, to look mm -hmm. at your biases, to try and see things from a much more nuanced perspective because Gen Z sees themselves as multifaceted, as nuanced, as Christian, you've been saying, as a very specific understanding of their identity. And they're going to surprise you at a lot of different turns. Love that. Uh, as you guys said, as, as Anna and Hannah, as you said, you, you only know half the story. Um, that's going <laughs> to uh, take us through our briefing uh, for the week. I want to give a big, uh, well, a, a huge shout out to the entire team that put the report together, specifically Hannah and Anna who are here, but also our design team, uh, our executive staff, uh, and everybody else who worked on, on researching and writing this. This has been such a fruitful, awesome conversation. And obviously a big shout out as well to Hannah, Davian, Anna, and Christian for their, uh, for their thoughts today. Thank you guys 
for joining us as well. Uh, thank, and, and thanks for the people online. You can join us Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday at noon New York time on our LinkedIn page. While you're there, jump in the comment section. Let us know your hottest takes on socialism on a good unionized latte. Uh, lots of great <laughs> stuff out there for you guys to let us know about. If you're interested in Q, the cultural intelligence platform we use to build this briefing and every other briefing, please feel free to reach out. It gives us incredible quantitative and qualitative insights around really tricky issues, just like we discussed today. Obviously, I have to send you to reports.sparksandhoney.com to check out our report, the, the Gen Z report that launched today. Again, you're going to learn a lot. We, we only covered a little bit of the story in these. So until next week, when we have lots of other great stuff, consider yourselves briefed.